out of the shotgun again. This crowd roaring. Takes the snap. Sets up. Sets up. Throws one over the net. Intercepted. Marlon Jackson. Marlon's got it. We're going to the Super Bowl. Listening to the Hoosier State Sports Show with Adam and Joey. Blood is running down my face, tears are forming in my eyes. Father always told me pain is temporary, keep in stride. Lift your head up, don't you cry. Fighters always will survive. That hurt you feel inside can only mean that you're alive. Keep your head down and digging. God will provide you vision and lead you where you need to be. If you just shut up and listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to the Hoosier State Sports Show. My name is Joey. I am once again joined by my friend Adam. Welcome back, brother. Thank you. Glad to be back. It's felt like, honestly, a long time since I've done this. <laughs> well, I know last week was a pretty eventful week for you guys, but I'm glad to have you back. Yeah, it's nice to be back. I'm, I was excited to do this. I was talking to a few coworkers about it today. All right. Well, with that, you want to let us know what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, so this week we're going to cover Colts regular season predictions. Finally, with IU's quarterback is decided, kind of followed by Purdue struggles against Fresno State, and then finally some Pacers updates and some minor minor local news. Joey and I kind of decided moving forward that we would consolidate if we had any major like state news that we wanted added back into just this sports show, but it won't be nearly as in-depth. It'll be just kind of listing things off just because, you know, we felt like it was getting to be a bit much. Yes, that is true. All right, Adam, you ready to dive right in? Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. All right, let's start with the Indianapolis Colts. And I know there was a, a bit of news come out this week, but this week will be the first edition of the regular season Blue Friday preview where we will talk everything Indianapolis Colts versus Jacksonville Jaguars. Of course, that season opener coming up this weekend. I'm looking forward to that. I know, Adam, you said you were too. But yeah. for today's episode, I thought it would be a good idea because this is really our last chance to I think we should both give out some predictions for how this year is going to go. So I don't know how this is going to go, but I think it'll be interesting to listen back to this maybe at the end of the season to see how close or how far off we were on some of these things. But Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to break it down into a few different categories. And, of course, the first one, we have to talk about Anthony Richardson. And I'm going to give you the floor here first. And I'm going to be honest, Adam, even though I proposed these questions – I haven't put a whole lot of thought into it, so it's going to be pretty interesting to see what we both come up with. But first prediction, Anthony Richardson, how many passing yards, passing touchdowns, and interceptions will he have? And then we'll move into the rushing part after that. All right, so I guess I'm already answering. <laughs> that was quick and short. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to kind of go a little bit noble here. I kind of look at the Colts wide receiver room. I think they've got – some decent weapons, but have some room to improve. So I'm going to go with what I think might be a conservative number. And I say that because some might not think I'm going to say about 3,200 yards. And then you want all those stats lines for him other than rushing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's just do passing yards, touchdowns and interceptions. Then we'll get into the rushing part. All right. So passing yards, like I said, 3,200, I'm going to throw a conservative number out 20, 20 touchdowns and the interceptions. I think he's going to throw anywhere from 15 or 16. So he will finish, you know, slightly above average, but you know, not a bad rookie season, but I don't think he's going to break any records by any stretch, at least passing anyway. 
Yeah, we're actually not too far off here. I think I'm going to be a little bit more conservative even on passing yards. And I'm going to say 2,900 passing yards. I know that sounds extremely low, but I'm basing this just off of what um, Jalen Hurts did in his rookie season. Also, I'm looking at Justin Fields up in Chicago and the kind of production he's gotten. And I do think that of all the things like we've talked about, it's really his arm talent that needs the most work coming to the <clears> NFL. Not saying he doesn't have it. I'm just saying it's what needs the most development. So passing yards, I'm going to say 2,900 yards. Passing touchdowns, I'm going to, again going to be a little bit more conservative than you. I'm just going to say 20, even passing touchdowns. And interceptions, I'm going to say 15 interceptions. So we're both kind of on the same same wavelength there, thinking conservative with our numbers on that one. Well, better to come back conservative than – you know, way ahead. I think this is just going to be one of those seasons where, you know, we're talking about a quarterback who, you know, has barely, you know, played 13 college games. And then I guess he only started like six or seven games in high school, even. So you talk about, you know, that raw talent. I think this would be his greatest showcase, but something to keep in mind with that too. You know, you didn't ask about can complete it or a percentage of passes complete. And I'm going to put him right at 60. I think he's going to kind of start, shutting the doubters off at least in that regard he's done pretty good with short passes and I expect that to kind of be one of the big reasons why he doesn't get more than around 3,000 yards yeah and I I guess I'd probably be close to the same number there as far as completion percentage but one thing that does make up for this lack of development in his passing game which we said it will be the work in progress this year is the the amount of work he puts in rushing the football and he's has been well documented as probably the most athletic quarterback ever to come out of the draft. So there would definitely be some opportunities for him throughout, you know, throughout the season to rack up some yards. So, which brings us to our next prediction for Anthony Richardson, Adam, how many rushing yards and how many rushing touchdowns do you think you'll have? See, I'm going to go a lot more conservative on this one. I think, you know, it's going to be testing the waters and if he rushes too much, the game becomes predictable. So I'm going to kind of use a conservative 350 rushing yards, but I do think he gets seven or eight rushing touchdowns on the ground. So that would bring my total to about 28 touchdowns in total for him. And then that combines him for about, what did I say, 3,200 yards passing. So I'm going to say about 3,500 total yards overall for the season. Yeah, see, this one is one that we do actually differ on a little bit. I was thinking more in the range of 650 rushing yards, which – Sounds like a lot for a quarterback, and it is, but it's happened numerous times, especially over the previous few seasons with the guys I've mentioned, you know, Jalen Hurts, Justin Fields. Obviously, Lamar's got a 1,000-yard rushing season under his belt. But I do believe that he's going to be more productive on the ground this year than he is through the air. That's why I came up to that total of 650 rushing yards. As far as rushing touchdowns, I haven't pinned for – 11 or 12 rushing touchdowns, which might sound like a lot, but all all said, when he combined my passing and rushing yards, that puts him right about the same. I said 2,900 passing, 650 rushing, so just over 3,500 yards total. My 20 passing touchdowns and 11 rushing touchdowns would put him at 31 touchdowns total. So I think combined, we're pretty close when you look at it that way, but I also think that both the numbers that we put out, if it were to come to fruition, would be more than enough to get him to that offensive rookie of the year 
you know, conversation, but that's a conversation for another day. Yeah, I, I don't see, you know, the competition, you know, really outpacing him much. And I think, you know, kind of like you just said, that rushing will be ultimately what that comes down to. I'm not going to say he wins Rookie of the Year. I am going to be honest, and this sounds crazy, but I kind of like Bryce Young's offense catered to him a little bit better. I think they're going to kind of look at conservative play if they, they give it to him. But, you know, this was a very good defensive class, just the same. And we'll talk, you know, more about, you know, breakout candidates for both sides of the ball in a minute. But, you know, I think Richardson can have a good year. I don't think it's going to be great by any stretch. But I do think, you know, a lot of people are going to finally start to be quiet, hopefully by the time it's all said and done. And then you mentioned, you know, the idea of the rushing yard. So I kind of wanted to rebuttal. I'm not going to disagree with it. But I would say one thing that kind of does stand, you know, to benefit you is the fact that he is a known rusher. And I guess, like, I started thinking about, oh, 600 yards is only 40 rushing yards a game. So, I mean, that is a bit more doable, certainly. But I I do think the team is going to really use a lot of people to rush the ball this year. And I think, you know, we're kind of thinking the same wavelength. You know, it's going to be, you know, red zone touchdowns are going to be a lot of the rushing, I'm sure. But I do expect him to break a couple loose. I wouldn't be surprised to see him have a few, and I don't say many, I do say a few hundred-yard rushing games. But then you'll have some where he doesn't do anything at all either as well. Yeah, I can definitely see that playing out this way. But you just mentioned the number of guys that are going to be involved in that rushing attack for the Colts, which leads us into our next one. And I'm going to give you the floor first on this one too, Adam. Who finishes as the Colts' leading rusher this year? And obviously, there's a lot to unpack with this question. Yeah, so I'm going to kind of, again, I'm going to think kind of conservatively. And my answer is, I'm going to say this two ways. Depends on trades. So quite simply put, I mean, I, I think we can both agree on this one. If he's not traded, I think JT, Jonathan Taylor, obviously leads the way. And I, I would say he'll be close to 1,000 rushing yards if – he is, in fact, there, even if he misses the four games. But I'm going to kind of throw a surprise out here. If he is absent from all of it, you know, I just said a second ago that Richardson has 350 rushing yards. I think that leads the team. So I do feel that if Taylor does not play, Richardson leads the team. And I think, you know, you have about 300 yards from Hole, 300 yards from Jackson, 300 yards from Moss. You know, I I really do see them spreading the ball out across the entire team. But obviously, you know, a big factor that plays into this in my mind is we don't even know if we have our leading rusher on the roster yet. And I say that because, you know, there was four reported visits just today. And, you know, none of them are very notable outside of James Robinson, who played for the Giants and Jaguars previously or Jets, sorry, and Jaguars previously. But again, we have, you know, rumored interest still in Kareem Hunt. So like you said, it is really hard to kind of pinpoint. But like I said, if JT plays, it's him. But as it currently stands, I think it's going to be Anthony Richardson. I think it's kind of interesting. You had a bold take in one way and then the other way you kind of left left it open because I'm taking all hypotheticals out of it. My answer to this is Jonathan Taylor. I've been... I've been hammering on the fact that I don't think he's going to be traded. I said it before that deadline given by the Colts last Tuesday. 
and I'll say it now, I believe after the four weeks are up, he's going to be playing. And I do think Jonathan Taylor is the leading rusher. I also find it interesting that with 350 yards from Anthony Richardson, you have that as your leading rusher. That is a very bold take. It'd be interesting if that really played out that way. Okay. And I mean, I'll say it like this. I could, if Jonathan Taylor doesn't play, Richardson's absolutely leading the team in rushing touchdowns. No questions in my mind about it. Kind of going back with what you said. So let me, let me use your ballpark figure. Let's say that I'm conservative and he rushes 600 yards. Again, you're talking again, that's a good complimentary running back. And I do, I do think that if he doesn't play JT referring to, again, it's going to be a running back by committee type of approach. And so you're going to have guys really splitting the ball, making, you know, whoever the hot hand is, the guy that carries it. And I think any given week that's slated to change. And I guess that's kind of my basis for it. Yeah, I can understand your standpoint. But like I said, I'm standing packed with the fact that I do I do think Jonathan Taylor stays with the Colts this year. I think he plays after he comes off that PUP list after week four. And I do have him as my leading rusher. But moving on. This one's a little bit easier, at least one would think, to answer is, who is the leading receiver for the Colts this year? Are we talking reps, yards, all of it combined? Yards. Okay, so if I'm looking at yards, I'm saying Josh Downs. I'll say it conservatively right now. I think it's going to be Josh Downs. And, again, for the same reasons that I said that Richardson is probably going to be the guy that has the most rushing touchdowns, I think – that Downs has the best ability to stretch the field for yards. If we're talking receptions, it's Michael Pittman, and it's not even close. Pittman, I think, gets his kind of statistics like he did last year, about 100 receptions and 800 yards. But I'm saying that I think Josh Downs in his rookie season is close to 1,000 yards catching the ball. I don't I don't think Alec Pierce is going to do very good, and I regret that because I've been trying to deal for him in a lot of leagues, but the drops – in the preseason games with Richardson is a huge red flag to me. And I don't think the tight ends or running backs are going to be able to produce very much. So I I think Josh Downs is going to shock the league. I think we're going to find out exactly what Reggie Wayne was talking about after the draft with, this is the best receiver in the draft. And I think he's going to put his money where his mouth is. Man, putting a lot of faith in the rookies this year. I like it, Adam. And you? I think for me, I'm not going to get cute with it. I do think it's Michael Pittman Jr. I think he leads in receptions and yards. And I was going to give you a dark horse candidate for to receive this honor, but I think I'm going to save that for our next one. So just keep it simple. I'm not going to get cute with it. I think it's Michael Pittman Jr. Fair enough. All right, and that leads us to biggest breakout candidates on each side of the ball and we'll start with offense Adam and if you don't mind I'll take this one first absolutely go right ahead all right so my biggest breakout candidate on the offensive side of the ball and I almost put his name out there for who our leading receiver would be as a possibility and that's Kylan Granson I know you just mentioned a second ago that you don't think any of the tight ends had a possibility to lead the team and I'm not saying Kylan Granson will but Everything I've seen and heard throughout camp is Kylan Granson's really solidified himself as a real as a true target for Anthony Richardson. I think that they've already got some strong candidate there. And Granson's one of those tight ends where he, he offers that flexibility. You can stretch him out wide and line him up as a receiver, or he can play that traditional tight end lined up on the line there. And I think <clears> that 
out of all the tight ends, we mentioned every week how packed that group was. He of all of them are going to have is going to have the most productive year, and you know how I feel about Jelani Woods. Of course, he's starting the year on IR, anyways. But I think Kylan Granson will be the breakout candidate on the offensive side of the ball. See, I guess my only rebuttal to that is going to be I understand it. I think it's an interesting pick. You know, he kind of has that Jack Doyle feeling to me. Like he can do what you need him to do. I guess my only problem is. The Colts ended up keeping, what, six, seven tight ends on the team? I mean, is he the breakout for tight end? I absolutely think so. I think he he does finally kind of show more of what he's capable of. But And I, and I do agree. I think he's absolutely, and I, I'll say this, I think he's the best tight end on the team. Is But as much as, you know, I think he has that it factor potentially, I just don't, I don't think we see it until next year. I think, you know, coming into that final year of his rookie deal next year is going to be when we start to see it. And, I mean, for me, I'll kind of give my breakout candidate and then I'll let you give me your thoughts as well. Um, obviously, I just mentioned it. I think it's going to be Josh Downs, quite plain and simple. I really do think that he's going to come in and show the world, you know, ever since they were drafted together, you know, these are players between Richardson and Downs that have been practicing. So obviously my vote was between those two. And I know quarterback's the safe pick, which I don't want to really make here. But I, I think Downs is going to really surprise a lot of people. And then someone else to be on the lookout for, too, is Dion Jackson. You know, looking at, you know, the fact that the Colts were willing to kind of keep him on the roster after everything and, you know, me thinking he was a roster cut. I do think he comes into his own as a pass catching back this year. And I think we see 30 or 40 receptions, you know, quite plain and simple, not a lot of yards, but I think he's going to have a really solid role regardless of who rushes the ball. Yeah, I can see that. And I like your Josh Downs pick. And I like the fact that you're doubling down on him. I I'm really high on Josh Downs myself, but I also want to say as far as your Deion Jackson pick as a dark horse, Kind of surprised that you didn't go with another rookie and Evan Hall at the running back position. He, uh, he's a guy I'm extremely high on. Just his ability to catch the ball out of the backfield, I think he does that on a more elite level than any of the backs on a on a roster. Outside, of course, of Jonathan Taylor, who's just the best all around back on the roster. Whenever he comes off the pup, but definitely like your picks there. Interested to see how it plays out. I'm gonna let you pick your breakout candidate on the defense first. See, this is a bit tougher for me, but I guess if I look through this roster and I think your pick's going to be one player or the other that I'm thinking, I think we're going to be on kind of similar wavelengths here. So I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Daryl Baker Jr., that's going to be my breakout candidate on defense. You know, coming into camp, you know, not really a name other than being a veteran, but, you know, he has solidified himself into that defensive lineup. I think we we don't see like, you know, tons of interceptions and I, and I'm not thinking about it from that way, but I, I do think he comes in, he carves out a nice starting role for him. And I think, you know, cause what was it? I was reading the ESPN or someone this week said that Jacksonville is going to have all three of their starting receivers, you know, scoring on us. Cause we are the easiest defensive matchup of the week given corners. So I think they're putting a lot of disrespect on our room I would have to say I strongly disagree with all of it. So obviously my other pick was going to be Dallas Flowers just because I really do think the corners 
in general will surprise us. But Baker, I, I know he has had a great camp. It's rep- been reported, you know, on multiple occasions. He's really kind of shown out. And I, I expect, again, people to finally recognize, you know, the Colts really have this understanding for getting the best out of their cornerback room. And I mentioned it on the podcast a couple weeks ago. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to my, my guns on that. I think a corner, but specifically Daryl Baker. But what about you? Yeah, I will say Daryl Baker is one of them that I really considered, but I think I'm going to surprise you, and I'm going to pick somebody that you didn't expect, and that is Dio Odengbo. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it seems like every year we've been waiting for Quiddy Pay to take that step up, to be that elite pass rusher that we all thought he could be when we drafted him out of Michigan a few years ago. And while Quiddy Pay has been okay, he's never really progressed much past that is just being okay in my opinion and Dio Dangbo in my opinion who's going into his third year in the league let's take a look at his rookie year only had half a sack last year five sacks I do believe that this is a trend that's going to continue this year I wouldn't be surprised if Dio Dangbo leads the Colts in sacks this year I know that's a pretty lofty statement to make but as far as pass rushing goes and this is not taking away from anything you know, and DeForest Buckner, clearly our best defensive lineman, is more of an all-around, you know, all-around defensive lineman. He's yeah. there for the pass game. He's there for the run game. But as far as pass rushing goes, in my humble opinion, Dio Adengbo is the best pass rusher we have on this team. And I really expect him to possibly even hit double digits, double-digit sacks this year. So for me, that is my breakout candidate on defense. I know it's kind of a wild card didn't take any of the rookies didn't take any of the the cornerbacks who are getting an opportunity to to step up but I feel pretty confident in saying saying Dio a ding well and going back to Dio's rookie season you mentioned the half a sack remember he was coming off of a torn ACL at that point so you know his rookie year he really didn't get to play hardly any and I think he was out for most of that and you know to his credit he was kind of still recovering early on last season and, you know, really started to show out. But I absolutely agree, you know, I mean, when we drafted Pay, I think people were like, oh, we got, you know, one of the best all-around defensive players in this draft. You know, this is a safe pick. But like you said, Pay has not come out and really shown that. But I am interested in that it is Dio for you because, you know, Samson and Beckham, you know, who we got from San Francisco, you know, his rush pass rate percentages are really good as well. And I guess my only knock against defensive end is your pick is that, you know, I think the Colts showed us in the preseason, the intention is to rotate a lot of these guys in and out. That could help Dio's case because he'll be fresher and, you know, he'll have the energy to come off the line. But I also think it puts, you know, again, the team at risk for not, you know, having a certain player that leads with that. I mean, if you want to, I would say, you know, I don't, I can't think of anyone other than maybe, you know, Shaq Leonard, who is going to be my other breakout candidate, you know, as someone to kind of lead in sacks. But I guess the way I'm kind of shaping it is I do think there's going to be a lot of rotations. I, I, I think we have a lot better season with sacks. I think, you know, we'll have multiple guys with five, you know, six sacks. But I, I don't know. I guess for me, my perspective is that of, you know, I think there's just going to be so much rotating. So I will say, I think it's hard, in my mind, it's harder to pick defense than offense because those players are going to be coming in and out constantly. And I don't think people quite understand that that is the team's plan is that you want 
all of the defensive players to rotate it in and out. I think you're going to get a lot of guys to get a lot of experience this year. And so I, I do like the pick for defense. I'd agree. It's not, you know, the flashy pick. It might be a bit of a surprise, but I, I'll also agree with you. I wouldn't be surprised to see him get 10 either, you know, and really well, take over that role as the starting defensive end. And just to kind of defend defend my point here a little bit, you mentioned a couple of things. Number one, bringing in a Beckham from the, 49ers one thing I'll say about that you got to remember he lined up opposite of Nick Bosa when he was with the 49ers which led to that higher than average pass rush win percentage you know you you pay a lot of attention to guys like Nick Bosa and then to follow up with your other point on the rotation that is correct they do do these rotations but they they do it situationally you have your first and second down run stoppers that you you traditionally put in there and then if it's like a second and long or a third and long, that's when you bring in the pass rushers. And I think that's when Dio is going to see the majority of his play time. And as you mentioned, he will be fresh because he's not going to be in there every play. So I think he's going to get a lot of opportunities on second and long, on third down, to really get after that quarterback. And I think he's going to rack those numbers up. And one more thing just to back this up a little bit further, in the three preseason games, Dio Dengbo finished with two sacks. So – He's already shown the ability to produce. Yes, I understand that's not all against starters, but just another reason to me why I feel pretty confident in my pick. Well, and I want to kind of piggy up with something that I think you're right and wrong about at the same time. It'll make sense as soon as I say it, but you you made the comment about Nick Bosa being who he's lining up across. I'd like to think that we have a better interior defensive line than San Francisco, which again, supports your your notion of Dio definitely being able to take off. But I also think it's enough to also support Beckham's ascension as well. I kind of think Quiddy Pay becomes the third defensive end in our scenario, in our lineups. And so I, I think both of the guys that we've mentioned, I think they take a step up. Quiddy Pay, I kind of think, takes a step down personally. But I don't know. I guess I like the notion of you know, our interior line. And I think we have a better defensive line. I'll say it right now. You can laugh at me. Anyone that listens can laugh at me. I think we're better than San Francisco, at least on the defensive line. And and I'll stick by that. You know, Grover is just as much a solid starting defensive tackle as Buckner. Now, Buckner is better, but I don't think Stewart's that much behind him. Well, you say we can laugh at you if you want. I'm not going to laugh at you, but I can't say I fully agree with you there, but one more thing, just to wrap up all of our predictions, and it's the most important one, Adam. What do you think the Colts' record will be at the end of the season? Well, I was reading some stuff on Facebook about this earlier today, and you know, some people are talking about the notion of, oh, we're not worse than Houston, and they predicted Houston for six wins and us for four. And I'm going to say it right now. I don't think we're better than Houston. I do think we are worse because Houston has a much better – again, overall defense than us. Again, uh, the offense, I think, is kind of a mixed bag. But obviously, they have all their starters. We don't have Taylor. And the way I'm framing this is as simple as this, and I'll stick by this. Jonathan Taylor, I don't believe, plays a single down for the Indianapolis Colts this season, trade or no trade. And I do think the Colts finish 4-13. and 13. I do think we pick in the top five next year. And we're going to get Marvin Harrison Jr. one way or another. And I think that's the way that it goes. With a trade or no trade for JT. Or of JT. 
but I'll let you go ahead and tell me your thoughts too. Well, I'll put it this way. I agree, but I disagree with you. I don't think that we're worse than Houston. I do believe we finished with a better record than Houston, but I believe our record will be four and 13. So I agree on the record. I just think that Houston will only win two or three games, which is pretty lofty. I also agree the Colts somehow find their way back in the top five of the draft. And they either got to hope that Marvin Harrison Jr. falls to them with all of those quarterbacks coming out. Hopefully there will be a quarterback run before them. Or they need to find a way to move up because I do believe Harrison Jr. will be an extremely early pick, obviously. So we agree on the record, but I do think we finish ahead of Houston. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was something like last year where it was Houston winning the last head-to-head game against us to, or yeah, however it went, Houston beat us at the end of the season so that the Bears can get the number one pick or what. It's going to come down to something like that this year. We play Houston to end the year. It's going to be one of those, the loser is the one that really wins because that means they get a better draft pick, if that makes any sense. Well, I do agree with it, and I would say Houston has that same need at wide receiver. I absolutely agree. I think Houston and us are tied for the bottom two teams. Tennessee's still a middling team, and obviously I think the win our division. But I think my one notion of this, and I want to go back to Marvin Harrison Jr. for just a second, is you know I think there's going to be a massive trade-up for quarterbacks. I think it's a little different than last year when teams didn't want to move into the top three for quarterbacks. Houston got their man at their spot. We got our man at our spot. Carolina got their man at their spot. You know, they traded up to get to that spot, granted. But, you know, Arizona, at no, they're already picking number one overall. I don't care what anybody says. They are that bad. So I think Arizona's moving up to get a quarterback at number one. Now, what remains to be seen after is unclear but they are talking as if six quarterbacks will go in the first round next year between Williams, May, McCarthy, and then I apologize for some of the other names I can't remember, but those are the three that kind of come to my head right now. But again, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Atlanta picking a quarterback. Yes, I know they just got Ritter, but I think that experiment fails, obviously, even though you know I have him in one of our fantasy leagues as my starter which says how bad my starters are more than anything else. <laughs> but I don't know. I I do think the Colts have a legitimate shot to get him. I don't think there's going to be the massive trade-up that we have to get him, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think quarterbacks are going to go in a string of three or four of the first four picks. So 75% of those would be quarterbacks. We're picking at four or five. I think Harrison is there for us. And then, you know, I know that other Ohio State receiver is also considered to be really good, just as, just the same. So I think we have a legitimate shot to get a really good receiver at that slot. And I think we're absolutely going to need it, considering, you know, there's questions on Pittman's return because there's no new deal. We don't we don't know if Pierce is going to develop this year. But obviously, you know, we show people what we need can do. I think maybe it changes and we might go after an offensive tackle, which we desperately need. You never know, which I guess we can save that conversation for after the season. Hopefully, and I will say this, we're both wrong and we somehow go 12 and 5 and make the playoffs, but I don't see that as a real possibility. But, well, I'll I'll add one final thing to wrap up. If Jonathan Taylor does play for us, and I, I don't think that he does, I'll stick behind that. But if he does, I think we're a playoff team. If Taylor does not play, I think we go 4 and 13. And, 
obviously, I'm going to stick to the fact that I don't think he plays. I'll probably be wrong, but I'm willing to say it because, again, I think Taylor is either going to play hardball or the team is going to play hardball with him, and that's just going to be the end of it. There, there's clearly more reasons that they don't think that they're dealing him. They think they can repair the relationship. I think it's more broken than what's being led on. And that's kind of my basis for it. Then Taylor still does not get the deal that he wants. And we all call it a nice, happy ending for everybody. Well, and I just want to point this out too. Remember earlier, I did say, I think Jonathan Taylor plays. And yet I still predicted the record to be four and 13. And if that tells you anything on how I feel, how this season is going to go. So even with Taylor, I'm sticking with my four and 13, but here we are once again, Adam. 30-some minutes into the podcast, just now getting done with the Colts conversation. But I think I'm pretty content on this conversation. Like I said, Friday is when we'll have the Blue Friday preview where we will get everything out there that you need to know heading up to that Colts versus Jaguar season opener on Sunday. So make sure you come back Friday evening to listen to that. But for now, Adam, speaking of football, we did have some college football games this past weekend. So let's break down those, and I'm going to let you start first with IU. Yeah, so obviously this is going to be pretty short and sweet because obviously there's not a whole lot to talk about with IU football because, as everyone knows, they faced Ohio State this weekend and got absolutely trashed, which I'll dive into further in a second. But the big thing is that IU's quarterback is officially known to some extent. So here's how this game went. And, Joey, that's why I said earlier we know their their quarterback kind of. So – Brendan Soresby did get, you know, the jersey. He was considered the number one quarterback. But he played, struggled early in the first quarter. Then they brought Taven Jackson in. Then Taven Jackson struggled before once again being replaced by Brendan Soresby. And so that game ended up being a 23-3 to result at home for IU against Ohio State. But let's kind of go into the one major statistic that concerns me. The rushing yards were horrendous. The receiving yards were horrendous, and you're going to understand why here in just a second. So, Brendan Soresby, his stats read as follows. Eight eight passes completed out of 15 total for 58 yards. That is a 3.9 average throwing the ball. You and I could do better. And Taven Jackson was even worse. He went one for five for 24 yards. That means he completed one pass. Now, he also had 11 rushing yards, which at that point – does not add a whole lot, but it shows that there's a rushing dynamic to him, at least some. So my big question for this, just looking at the offense, and I'll look at the defense in a minute because that's a bigger bright side, but understandably, this was a game against Ohio State, which IU doesn't usually win. So I don't think any IU fan is shocked. But do you see this performance from these two quarterbacks as a large concern at all? And then Again, we never really speculated on this either, and I'll come back to this question if you need me to. But why do you think that IU never announced the starting quarterback? So I'll have you dive into that. I'm going to answer that second question first, Okay. and it kind of relates to the first question. I don't think they ever announced the starting quarterback because despite what Tom Allen's saying, they don't know who they want to be their starting quarterback. Yes, I realize Soresby got the start, and I realize he had more playing time than Jackson. But at the same time, you saw him put Jackson in the game for a little bit a little bit there in the middle. So despite what they're saying, I think that there's still a little bit of them working through who they believe their actual starter is. And I'm interested to see who they line up with next weekend. 
But like I said, that kind of ties into the first question. That in of itself is concerning to me. And I, I don't know the exact quote, so I apologize to that. And this is just based off of listening to Kent Sterling a couple of days ago. Both quarterbacks expressed during the postgame press conference that they had a problem establishing any kind of rhythm because they just didn't know when they were going to go in and when they were going to be taken out for the other guy. Number one, you don't want those peop- those guys talking about that openly. No. But number two, that is a legitimate concern. And if I'm Tom Allen, no matter how hard it is, I'm picking one of these guys and I'm sticking with them for better or for worse, you, you know, just like a marriage. So I'm concerned if I'm an IU fan that they are still kind of in this disarray of not knowing who they want to play. And I'm also concerned at how they both performed in that game. Excuses or no excuses. That's just that's poor quarterback play. Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, I'm going to sit here and say this now. I've always been able to rave up IU quarterbacks and, and think about it. You know, Michael Penix Jr. He is a solid starter for the University of Washington. You know, he's a Heisman contender. IU had him in a really a couple of nice, solid stretches. Then they had Peyton Ramsey before him, who is a pretty solid quarterback. He was a three-year starter for the team. Go back before that, Nate Sudfeld started for IU for four years. He's an NFL quarterback for the Lions, you know, and he's had stints, you know, winning a Super Bowl with the Eagles as well. Not that he played, but still. And then I could go back even further. But here's my point. IU has always managed to find a way to figure it out with the quarterbacks. The quarterback play, I will say, at least since I've watched, which, again, for me, goes back to the Kellen Lewis days where, you know, IU really was trying to figure out with deciding a quarterback and this is the last time we dealt with a decision like this but again the indecisiveness of that is a huge concern like you said you know I think the fact that Tom Allen couldn't decide is bad and you know one thing that I want to say because the last time that you know IU had a legitimate starter last season was Dexter Williams the second and, you know, we when we went to that Maryland game, remember, he got hurt. That was, the, like, that was the quarterback running all over the field. He was a, a dual-threat quarterback, you know, and I think he was basically the best quarterback at that time we had on the roster. I will say this. Williams is still currently out with the torn ACL, but there are talks about him playing this year, and I'll, I'll say it right now. If he's healthy, I think he's the starter. But like you said, I completely agree right now. Tom Allen has to decide which of these quarterbacks he wants to go with. And, and again, we predicted a week ago, IU's going either 2-10 and 10 or 3-9. and nine. I don't think that IU is going to be a bowl contending team. I'm not willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. They lose too many games that they should win or, you know, they're winning a game and manage to get three touchdowns put against them for a loss at the end. So... At the end of the day, agree completely. They need to decide on who the quarterback is. But moving on past that, there was a bright spot in this game. And again, no one's going to look at a, a loss as bright spots. But I want to talk about IU's defense for a minute. So they are the key takeaway from this game. First things first, they held Ohio State to 23 points. Last year, if memory serves me correctly, Ohio State scored either 38 or 58 points against us. We got blown out last year by them. And granted, you know, 
keep in mind, Ohio State usually has NFL caliber type of prospects that they that they have on the field on offense. One of them being Marvin Harrison Jr., who IU held to 18 yards receiving on two receptions. So again, they shut down all of the receivers. You know, McCord ended up throwing for, I believe, 239 yards, Ohio State's quarterback. But again, IU, that means they held the starting quarterback to less than 250 yards. I don't care what level of the college you're in. That is outstanding pass defense. Absolutely outstanding. And again, Ohio State, you figure, what was it? Nine of those points were field goals, I would want to add. So again, you're talking two touchdowns that IU allowed against the offense. So looking deeper into that, senior Aaron Casey, defensive tackle, had 11 tackles, nine solo tackles, and one that was tackled for a loss. And then the other big thing is the transfers that came in. You know, Kobe Miner, I love that name, by the way. He had six tackles, but... The transfers that came in from the university, these seniors and juniors that IU really looked at the portal for, Jacob Magnum Ferrer from Stanford, he had two big plays on defense where he was able to swat the ball away. Andre Carter, defensive end, he came in and had two plays that he was able to break away. Nick Toomer, the new corner, also from, you know, the PAC conference, he came in and did well. You know, so the transfers, the veteran approach seems to be working for Tom Allen. And again, I know these were guys that probably were not like high caliber starters at their universities. But again, I think a veteran defense is something that IU has never gone with. I remember in my day, it was always starting freshman defensive tackles and, you know, sophomore players. But I think IU really wanted players that had more of a chip on their shoulder to kind of end their college days, you know, come in and do pretty well. So Again, all this to say, this is a very small sample size. But I do want to ask your opinion on the transfers as well. Do you think that ultimately that this approach of transfers playing, you know, and doing kind of like what they did in this first game, do you think that pans out? And how much do you think that Tom Allen being the defensive play caller again has to play into this as well with how well the defense did? Well, first, let me just say, and this goes without saying, if you would have told me before Saturday that IU was going to hold Ohio State to 23 points, I would have told you they had every opportunity in the world to beat Ohio State. That was our biggest concern all offseason long, and I remember talking about it a few weeks ago, just how bad that IU defense was last year. And it was like on a record pace bad last year. And I remember us talking about these transfers and Tom Allen taking over the play calling. And I even said – I think they take a step up, but that's because that's the only way they can go because they were that bad last year. But they've completely shocked me this week. And now, whether this trend continues throughout the year, I don't know. That's that's yet to be seen. But one of the best teams in all of college football, year in and year out, Ohio State, and stepping up and holding them to 23 points, that's got to be due to the transfers and Tom Allen making those play calling. I don't know what else that it could account to. So I do think that that really played a large role in their performance against Ohio State. But I'm not completely sold yet that that trend will continue. I guess we'll have to pick that conversation back up. Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting discussion for next week. But before kind of wrapping, you know, up this conversation very, very quickly, you know, 
one of the, my biggest takeaways is, you know, if you have players that are coming in from other programs and the defense is performing to this level, again, I think that's going to actually end up at the end helping IU. So I'm willing to say as of right now, because of the schedule, I think IU has played their hardest game of the year. Now, granted, it was at home, which I know sounds bad that their hardest game would be at home. But again, I I don't think Michigan or Penn State are better than Ohio State. And that yes, that is with the crazy quarterback issues at Ohio State. Michigan, I give the quarterback a leg up because, you know, he's an NFL first-round prospect. But, you know, again, think about it. They've played one of the best teams in the country and held them to this. Now, granted, IU will play next week against a much easier opponent at home in Indiana State. So I would like to think that IU is going to have a coming-out party of sorts next week. And I don't mean it because of the offense. I think that, you know, they'll score 20, 30 points. But I think the defense is going to come out and absolutely shut down Indiana State. I think next week's game will be low-scoring. But for the defense, I think it's going to be kind of like, oh, we've got this now. And I think yeah. the defense will be what keeps us in games, not the offense. Yeah, I, I'm definitely interested to see how the defense plays against a much lesser of opponent in Indiana State. But I'm also mm-hmm. interested to see what Tom Allen does with quarterback. Does he do the same approach where he gives both of them a little bit of playing time? Does he pick one and stick with it? I'm interested to see how that plays out. But Adam, I know you got some IU basketball notes here, but you care if we jump down to cover the Purdue football game and come back up to those? Nope, I already scrolled down to Purdue's notes, so don't worry. I'm already there with you. All right. You got anything else on IU before I dive in? Hopefully we can get a win next week. (laughs) Well, another team that did not get a win this week was my Purdue Boilermakers. Purdue lost their season opener to Fresno State by a score of 39-35. to And, Adam, we mentioned it a few weeks ago, the new head coach for Purdue and a new quarterback. So, obviously, there was a lot of questions surrounding the team. And my biggest takeaway from this game was the poor performance from the defense. And this is another thing we talked about a couple weeks ago. Ryan Walters, the coach of Purdue, is a defensive mastermind. And he was big in that in, or Illinois defense last year, which was tops in the nation in m- multiple categories. So it was it was pretty interesting that his first game with Purdue, he had to watch the Boiler defense get torched by Fresno State quarterback Mikey Keene. Keene finished the game 31 of 44 for 366 yards and three touchdowns. And Ryan Walters had a post-game quote on that performance from the Fresno State quarterback, and it's just in four simple words. He lit us up, which is true if you look at the stats there. But (laughs) Additionally, Fresno State added 116 yards on the ground, which means the Boilers gave up a total of 488 yards in Ryan Walters' debut Definitely not the way I or anyone really envisioned this game going for the defense. But looking at the offense, the offense looked okay, I would say, especially early. They even managed to take a lead 21-17 to into halftime. Hudson Hudson Card finished his first game with the Boilermakers 17-30, so you're just over that 50% completion mark for 254 yards and two touchdowns, and he also added 29 yards on the ground. So all in all, not a terrible start for his Boilermaker career, but definitely would have liked to see more from him. And Card's favorite target was Deion Burks. He caught four catches for 152 yards 
and both of Card's touchdowns, which means all but 100 yards from Hudson Card went to Deion Burks, including both of those touchdown passes, one of which was the first score of the game, which was an 85-yard catch and run by Burks. So definitely looks like Purdue has their next great wide receiver. This is a tradition that seems to be like annual when you start thinking about them. Charlie Jones, David Bell, the list goes on and on. The Purdue rushing attack was a running back by committee, which is a term that we're going to use quite a bit for the Colts this year, it sounds like, which this was expected by the Boilermakers. Devin Mockaby led the way, racking up 60 yards on 16 carries. Dylan Downing added 17 yards on five carries. And wide receiver turned running back Tyrone Tracy Jr. only got three yards on three carries, which means all told, the Boilers averaged just 3.6 yards per carry. And before I get into the conversation with you, Adam, I just wanted to note this too, since I mentioned Tyrone Tracy's name. Tyrone Tracy also had a 98-yard kick return for a touchdown in this game. So wanted to make sure I made note of that. But Adam, I just wanted to ask you, what's more concerning to you? The lack of production on the, on the offensive side of the ball, and I'm primarily talking about the inability to get the run game going, and also the fact that there wasn't much diversity in the receiving room with only one receiver outside of Burks totaling more than 46 yards? Or is it more concerning the overall struggles by the defense given Ryan Walter's background? Um, again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but Ryan Walters was a top 20 defense when he was at Illinois. And so when you hire a head coach like this, and one of your biggest reasons is your defense being the issue, and you kind of want that to be your turnaround, you know, it is concerning to some extent. Now, I get to brag about IU for a minute here, and I know that it's like, how the heck does he have something about IU to say? But Fresno State's coach is actually Kellen DeBoer, who used to be IU's offensive coordinator before they poached us from him about a year ago. So the thing that I always knew about DeBoer's offense is that he was going to get large stretches down the field. So again, Fresno State's game is that of a lot of passing. You think about it, both Derek and David Carr both went to Fresno State. So they're not exactly an unknown university when it comes to good quarterbacks and good throwing schemes. That's kind of the way that Fresno State likes to run things over there in California. And so, again, I will say as much as I'm concerned about the defense, I'm not overly concerned yet. You know, unlike IU, who can only score three, at least Purdue is competitive in this game. But I will say, yeah, you can't be allowing, you know, two touch or three touchdowns from the opposing quarterback, you know, in a, com- a combination of almost 500 yards. The yards are the concerning thing. Not so much that Purdue lost, but the yards that they allowed. And so that's going to kind of be Ryan uh, Walter's big scenario that he needs to look at as they go into next week. But I'm not exactly sure how much easier it gets for them. And I'll let you dive into that here in a second. So, or I'll let you dive into that now. Go ahead. Well, well, first, I completely agree with you. The defensive struggles is what was the most concerning to me, especially when you think about Ryan Walters' track record, you just mentioned it, top 20 defense with Illinois. And I really thought that that was an area that he was going to see a massive improvement from day one with the Boilermakers. And you mentioned it earlier with IU, how small the sample size it is. One game, you know, one game's not going to define any team or any unit anywhere yet. 
But at the same time, it's definitely not the way you want to start the season. And as you mentioned, they do have a chance to rebound next week. They are on the road to take on the Virginia Tech Hokies, who are fresh off a 27-7 to win over Wofford. I don't know much about Wofford, but I assume they're not much of a powerhouse as far as football goes. So interesting to see how Purdue matches up with Virginia Tech. Hopefully the defense can have a nice rebound game that can kind of set the pace for the rest of the season. But interested to see how that game plays out. That game will kick off Saturday at 12 p.m. Yeah, so I think our teams both have much better chances next weekend of winning. Well, at least my team has a better chance of winning next weekend. But what I'll say for Purdue is I have to commend them for facing two somewhat difficult opponents to kind of start. You know, they'll kind of jump into Big Ten play in the much easier Western division for this final year. And so maybe that's part of their basis for having more of these away games is to give them, you know, that boost that they probably should have had when they went to the Big Ten championship last year. But we can dive more into that and we can jump back to IU now, which I'm more than happy to do unless you've got anything else you want to add. Nope. Go ahead and getting into your IU basketball updates. So I wasn't going to mention this until later, but I also realized what week we were in. I can't believe that it's September already. That came by too quickly, but I want to kind of bring back a topic we discussed previously with Liam McNeely and Derek Queen. So they are both making their official visits to IU this week. So very, very big week riding for IU basketball as to how next year goes. But again, just to kind of bring them back up, McNeely is considered, you know, to be considering IU. And a lot of people believe that IU is his favorite spot to land right now. He has had previous conversations about how his last visit with Queen was pretty good. But Derek Queen, however, himself is making a visit to Kansas or has, I should say, this past weekend. And then obviously Derek Queen is going to be visiting Texas and apparently, or sorry, and McNeely is going to be visiting Texas where he is originally from. And then obviously I know for Queen, Maryland being where he is from is considered another big favorite as well. So this this weekend, when they go to IU, it has a lot of implications, I think, you know, for our program. Because, Joey, I don't know if you knew this or not, but again, it seems like, you know, we talked about these two previously being kind of a package deal. And now it doesn't seem like they are. But here's what I want to add real quick. And I put some stats for you to kind of look at just from some of the summer league play and whatnot. But if you could only grab one of these two between Queen or McNeely, who are you going after? Keep in mind that McNeely is number 11 in this class. Derek Queen is number 19. So if you can land only one, who are you taking and why? Could could you refresh my memory as to which position each guy plays? Yes, absolutely. So Derek Queen plays center slash power forward. Think of him as like uh, Trace Jackson Davis. And then McNeely is a forward, I believe, a small forward, specifically based on his 6'7 frame. I would probably lean Liam McNeely. Number one, he's the five-star rank. You said ranked number 11 yeah. in all the recruits. And I would think that the, the Hoosiers would benefit more from a forward than a center. I know we mentioned – a few times this week or in the past few weeks where the, where the Hoosiers set at center right now, I guess I would probably lean McNeely just because I'd rather have that forward in the lineup. But I also want to say it's interesting that they're both taking visits 
individually, but they're also doing this visit with this visit with IU together. So it's kind of inter- it's almost like they're keeping all options open, whether that's going together somewhere, going you know their separate ways. It's kind of interesting to see how they're approaching this because it's really tr- kind of hard to get a feel as to whether they're legitimately considering you know going together if they're legitimately considering going their separate ways. I don't know if this is some kind of like a power move from them even. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, and I'd have to say, you know, you know, to go back to the initial question, I absolutely agree. I think McNeely is the one that I'm taking in this case, and I think that boils down to two things. Number one, he has elite playmaking. You know, think about like a Jalen Hood Shafino or a guy like him that's a point guard that can pass in the center, and that's what McNeely is. You know, his numbers are pretty solid with that. Not a lot of assists, but the ability to make plays, pass the ball, and do all of that. But, again, we talked about this last year with IU. One of the biggest knocks has been their three-point shooting. And I would say that's going to be one of their big concerns after we lose Trey Galloway at the end of the season. You know, we're going to lose Xavier Johnson, who's a pretty good, solid three-point shooter. McMago probably ends up leaving at the end of the season. Again, if Malik Renault performs, he might go to the draft. IU could have as many as four people, I think, go in the first or second round. And so I'm trying to get elite playmakers to kind of come into that lineup. Again, McNeely is just that. He's a solid three-point shooter. Again, in the, the spring games that he played this year, he's averaging almost 16 points and four rebounds. So again, you know, this is a guy that also shot for 41% from the three-point line as well. So, again, those are pretty solid numbers. And, again, Mike Woodson is going to have to adapt his offense to fit more of a, a, a modern play style. But I would certainly chalk up McNeely as the one that if I had only one of them to get. But, obviously, I know with Queen, you know, the upside to him is if we end up losing, you know, Kal-El Ware, who I also forgot about for a minute. You know, we're going to need someone to replace him at center because, I don't know, Peyton Sparks just doesn't present that kind of guy to me. But, again, like you said, these players I know are probably doing this to keep all their options open. But I think I can only imagine the type of pitch that IU is going to try to make to them with them being together and knowing that, you know, their homeboys Malik Renault and Jalen hood Shafino came from, them, from their same school. So I have to think if – they don't end up going to IU. IU is number two right behind them. So I, I really am interested to see how that recruiting process goes. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to look at all the different ways that IU really has an upper hand on people in this whole thing. Like you mentioned, all the guys that have already come through that academy to IU, plus the fact you know IU always shows out in those visits when they host these big recruits. So if, if I'm a betting man, I'd say IU has a decent shot at least landing one of them. But anytime you have a chance to get a two-for-one, especially of this magnitude, you got to really, you know, leave no tables left unturned. And I remember a month or two ago, you was talking about a comment that Woodson had made as far as recruiting, and his whole thing is make it to where they can't say no. And it's interesting to see what IU might do to just try to get both of these guys in the building. Yeah, absolutely. And so – One other decision that I want to kind of talk about real quick, because it's also coming up, Uh, 2024 four-star guard Jaden Mustaf is also announcing his decision on September 14th. So, again, he's kind of that shooting guard, 
position, which is going to be something that IU will also need at the end of the year, considering that Gabe Cups probably moves over to that point guard for 2024. But again, it sounds like a lot of these players are also making their decisions pretty quickly. I know we talked about Flory Bedinga making his decision in the last couple of weeks to go to Kansas. I'd imagine that a lot of these players want to get these decisions made before fall ball starts in late October, early November. So again, very big week for IU. Obviously, you know, Purdue's not as much on the, you know, higher elite recruiting, but for IU, you know, this week is big too, because Joey, I don't know if you know this, but IU has no signed players for next year's class. Yeah, kind of kind of interesting that they've gone this deep into it. But as you mentioned, a lot of those bigger recruits are kind of have kind of been waiting, weighing out all their options and really is getting into crunch time when you start seeing more and more of these announcements. Well, and one thing to consider, too, IU still has that open scholarship. And again, there was rumors that Derek Queen might try to go to the class of 2023 and play this fall. So. Again, there's there's potentially a lot riding on this visit. Again, I don't think it sounds like McNeely is going to do that because I know he's still developing. But again, you know, I think all bets are off at this point for what IU is going to try to get them in the door. But hopefully we can get some recruits because we're going to lose several players at the end of this season to graduation. So pretty interesting scenarios there. But do you have anything else before we move on to believe it or not our last major discussion? Nope. I'm pretty content there. Just, uh, just to go back on our college discussions. I'm looking forward to more college football this weekend. And at some point I'll try to get some more updates on Purdue basketball squeezed in here or there on certain episodes. Just, I haven't really seen much that's jumped out at me. Plus we're trying to, like Adam said earlier, trying to consolidate the Hoosier state happenings into this show that way there's not as much every week. So just just so we can try to keep it at a somewhat of a manageable length, I'm just going to every now and then throw in the Purdue basketball updates. But definitely we'll see more and more every week about the football as they're going on. And Adam normally does a pretty good job of getting you up to date, up to date on IU basketball as well. Yeah, and I'm sure once the recruiting stuff happens for basketball and we either have someone signed or we don't, That'll be a very brief discussion, and then you probably won't hear too much about IU basketball for a little bit just before the season starts. But in alluding to basketball, I want to go ahead and jump to the Indiana Pacers because uh, there's actually updates to this for today, but I'm going to make it very brief because it's going to actually support a question that I was going to initially ask. So uh, this past week, Tyrese Halliburton and Team USA lost to Luthiania by a final count of 110 to 104 which is a feat not seen in nearly 20 years. The team was badly out-rebounded. They were out-rebounded by 16 by a margin of 43 to 27. And then Luthiania made 56% of their three-point attempts. Again, and no, that's not a typo, considering they're a European-based team. So they made 56, 14 of 25. So it wasn't like it was just a few three-pointers either. And then... They ended up facing Italy in the elimination game today, which they won. Now, in these games, Tyrese Halliburton has continued to come off the bench. And so Halliburton today himself coming off the bench had an 18-point and 9-assist performance and like 7 rebounds. was all over the place. 
But here's what I kind of want to ask, just kind of referring back to that first game. So a 12-point first quarter made it difficult for the team to come back. Jalen Brunson has not shown that it factor. He's played solid, but there's not an it factor. Halliburton has come off the bench in less minutes and absolutely continued to ravage people. You know, there was a quote from, I want to say it was Michael Bridges, who kind of talked about, you know, a play that he remembers like the Seattle uh, seat or the Seattle storm or the Seattle supersonics. There we go. That was a play made back in their heyday that Halliburton ended up making this game. And it's like, I can't believe I got to see that play in real life. You know, I just remember watching it on TV, but again, Halliburton absolutely came in and made plays. And so here's where my question kind of comes through. Why do you think that Halliburton continues to come off the bench despite his role and how well he's done. And then kind of throwing it in there, but Steve Kerr has acknowledged this past week that he loves Halliburton as a player. So why not start him if you're like openly acknowledging your love for this player and you know what he's been doing for the team? Why not put him over Brunson? What do you think the issue is? Well, quite literally, the only thing I can think of, and I'll explain why I'm thinking this here in a minute, is if there's some kind of restrictions passed down from the Pacers organization about he can only play this many minutes, he can only do this much. We did, we mentioned, you know, he just got that that max deal from the Pacers, so Pacers have a lot of money invested in the Halliburton, and obviously it's no it's no secret last year how he had had suffered a little bit from the injury bug. The only thing I can come to conclusion that makes sense is that there was some kind of restrictions, like I said handed out by the Pacers, you know, to Steve Kerr saying, don't play him this much, don't play him that much. And the thing I want to compare it to is a few months ago, back in the World Baseball Classic, you saw a very similar thing. I mean, it's a little bit different because the World Baseball Classic was taking place at the same time as spring training for baseball for the MLB. But a lot of coaches handed each of these teams that had players from the MLB on them restrictions and guidelines saying they have to rest on this day for the pitchers. They have to pitch at least two innings on this day and this day and this day and so on and so forth. And it really made it kind of a difficult job for the managers of the national teams, you know, to accommodate, but they had to, if they really wanted that player's services. So that's the only thing I can think of is if it's something similar like that with Halliburton, because performance wise, you mentioned it, Halliburton has looked just as good and better in most areas than Brunson has. And if the goal is to legitimately win, I don't see any reason why Halliburton wouldn't be the starter other than the fact that, like I said, maybe they were just told they can't do that. Well, and I do want to make a correction on my statistics. So in the game, first things first, the the Team USA won by a final score of 100-63 to today. So that's a 37-point margin of victory. Halliburton was actually the team's second leading scorer coming off the bench. And he did today play more than Brunson. He played 20 minutes. Now I'm going to read this stat line. And again, it is a correction. The points I had correct, but I messed up on some of the other categories. So here's what his stat line was for today against a team that had only lost one more game than the USA. So Halliburton goes as follows, has played 20 minutes. He shot six for nine today. Three pointers, six for eight. That means he made 75%. Wow. He had four rebounds in that game, all defensive, so nothing spectacular. But he had five assists, three steals, and a block in that game. 
with one foul. So he came off and did absolutely everything. Brunson, again, didn't do bad. He shot for 50%, one for two from three-pointers, two foul shots. Halliburton never shot any fouls. Brunson had two rebounds to four assists and then nothing else. Halliburton pretty much did anything and everything along with Pablo Benchero today. So, again, why are you not playing the guy that does a little bit of everything? We've talked about this with Grace Berger and the Fever. Again, if you have the player, like you said, that can come out and solidly give you these efforts, why not play that player? Maybe not, you know, the other guy, but my problem, you know, is I don't disagree with your with your theory. I think that's actually makes a lot of sense, but Brunson's in the exact same boat and he's still the starter. But again, it's not like these guys aren't all highly or not highly paid, but as I look at the average minutes, I think 20 minutes is what goes around. So I guess as I'm sitting here and looking at statistics, you know, part of it probably is just simple facts that, you know, there's not enough minutes to go around and you want all of these guys to play quite a bit, but I said it from the get-go. I thought Halliburton should have been the starter over Brunson. I stick behind that. And again, there's nothing that's going to change my mind. But with the win today, the Team USA does, you know, have an Olympic. They did qualify for the Olympics, but apparently they did it even though they lost to Lithuania, which makes no sense, by the way. And I disagree with the logic, but it's the USA and they have the best players, so that's probably why they did it. But, (laughs) But again, you know, they go on into the next round and into the medal game. So they will come out of the FIB or FIBA World Cups with at least a bronze medal at this point. And then I believe that the way things are looking, they'll probably face Lithuania again in the finals. So pretty interesting, you know, take on what could end up happening here. Absolutely. So with that being said, uh, let's move on into one other or two other big Pacers stories. One of them's not so big, but um, the Pacers announced their depth chart for this, for this season. And so I want to kind of dive into it and I want to kind of get some takeaways on several different things. You can kind of chunk it all into one. So here's the positions as follows point guard. Halliburton is the starter. TJ McConnell is the backup. Bruce Brown is third string. Shooting guard, Mathurin is the starter. Nebhart is the backup. Naismith is the third string. Small forward, Heald is the starter. Brown is the backup. Naismith is third string. Noria is fourth string. Power forward, Jarris Walker, the rookie, ended up taking it over Obi Topin. Topin is the backup. Naismith is third string. And then finally at center, and this one is the one that I think that shocked me the most, is Miles Turner is the starter, no big surprise, but they stuck with Jalen Smith as the backup and Isaiah Jackson as third string. So left out from being third string or better was Daniel Theus and Ben Shepard. So I'm going to kind of say all my pieces and then you can kind of give your takeaways on what you feel like. But I wanted to get some thoughts about the idea that Mathurin is starting, that Topin and Brown are backups, Nebhardt is a shooting guard instead. And then Jackson's lack of elevation after preseason play. So let's start there, and then I'll ask my other question. Well, I, I'd just say nothing really jumps out at me. I do think that Mathurin is deserving of that starting spot. 
They came in off the bench last year and looked pretty strong about every time he did. So I'm okay with that. Walker starting as a rookie doesn't really surprise me, especially when you look at the need, the power forward or at the power forward position for the Pacers. That's the whole reason he was drafted. So as far as I'm concerned, nothing really on the depth chart that surprises me, I don't think. What about you before you move on? Well, I think for me, my big takeaway is I, I don't disagree with any of the starters. I don't disagree with McConnell earning the right to be the backup. I guess I'm kind of surprised that, you know, we signed Brown to this deal and, you know, he's not being thought of more. Now, granted, he is the third string point guard. So I think the Pacers are going to try to find a way to employ him. But again, from what I look at here, it's like there's not a very clear sixth man. And that's not something I think we'll know until like rotations come in. It could be that it seems like to me that either Brown or Topin will be that guy. I don't think Nebhard is that sixth man. Yeah, he can get a lot of assists, but he's not the guy off the bench that's going to be doing the scoring. I think that belongs to Topin in my personal opinion. But again, you know, as I look at the rest of it, I'm kind of surprised that Naismith, who we just traded for in a deal to get rid of, I can't even remember the guy's name now, Malcolm Brogdon. There we go. Um, The fact that he's not, you know, kind of considered in an upper role too. So for me, I guess the big takeaway is I I just want to know how they're going to split all this. Cause it seems like you've got a solid roster, but I don't think there's enough to go around. And so before I get to my next question, is there anything else that you want to add? Nope. I think I'm pretty content on that. So with that being said, what do you think the ultimate impact based on current standing of the depth chart is for Jordan Noria, Daniel Theus, Aaron Naismith and Isaiah Jackson? What do you think kind of happens with those guys? Well, I I think there's a couple that might have some trade value there. I, I don't know that they all do. Some of them might just be a matter of cutting ties with them. I do want to say that Jordan Nuora is one that I feel like was a name that came up a lot last year after the Pacers acquired him from the Bucks as somebody that really contributed on multiple different occasions for the Pacers. So I definitely with all of them, I don't think that the that their time with the Pacers is, you know, cut short by any means. I do think that there's an opportunity for them to play their way back onto the court, especially Nawara. But anytime you're left, you know, not, not even as a backup, then I think that speaks volumes to just how the Pacers feel about you. So whether that's cutting ties with you or trying to put you out there as trade bait, I definitely think that for a few of these guys, their time might be up in Indy. Well, and I think that's a good way to put it, too, because as I look at this, you know, I think out of all of the names that I mentioned in my question about their impact, the biggest loser out of everyone is Daniel Theus. You know, we acquired him in that Brogdon deal along with Naismith, but, you know, Theus was barely seeing the court as the year went on last year anyway. And, you know, with Isaiah Jackson taking that third spot at center, you know, and it seems like the team is going to definitely run some small ball lineups just based on how this is configured. But I see Daniel Theus's name out of everyone being the most numbered. But again, I, I don't, I don't say this, you know, to slight buddy healed, but I don't think that his days of being on the roster are all that long. I do think he gets dealt by the trade deadline. I wouldn't be surprised though. Again, to see some of these players get packaged with them. But my my other piece is Noria and Naismith are on their final year of their deals. 
And again, we talked about how the team barely had room to get anybody on their roster this year. But if I'm the team, I'm looking at the battle of Noria and Naismith to see who you end up keeping. Because remember, the Colts or the Colts, the Pacers have the team option on Bruce Brown. And I think ultimately he is a trade chip, you know, to get rid of some salary in the spring after the season ends. So again, I don't see Brown stay being long. So I do think they're going to try to look at the rest of those four guys and figure out who's worth keeping. But I ultimately predict that Daniel Theus is probably going to, you know, be a cut if we can't trade him and the team's going to have to take on some dead money. But again, you know, these are all forwards. They're that it's that position. So I think it also speaks volumes as well to how deep they are. But then with that too, Ben Shepard not playing is kind of a shock to me because you spent a first round pick on him. You know, you'd like to see him get in there and prove his stuff, but you know, there, there really isn't room. And so I do think the team is better than what appears. And I think that's a large reason for how this lineup was set up. Absolutely. And a little over a month away, we're, we're going to start to get some of those answers once, once the Pacer season tips off. Absolutely. So kind of jumping into two more slight Pacers topics, and I'm going to switch the order of this real quick and you'll see why, but four Pacers were included in ESPN's top 100. So Benedict Mathurin came in at 94th. Bruce Brown came in at 88th. Miles Turner at 57th and Tyrese Halliburton at 33rd. So in your mind, what looks right and what, what looks wrong? Um, I'm kind of surprised that Mathurin cracked, cracked that top 100. I understand that he was effective coming off the bench last year. I just personally don't know if he's done enough to earn that top 100 yet, but definitely no disrespect to him. I think Halliburton should probably be a little higher than 33rd. I think that he, he could easily be top 20 in the league, so it's kind of surprising that he's all the way back at 33rd. Yeah, I guess when I look at this, my my biggest surprise is that Bruce Brown, who is not a starter at any position and is only the backup on the depth chart at one position, is rated higher than Buddy Heald, who is a starter. So, yeah, I can see why you would come to that conclusion also. So what I would say is I think the only thing that's wrong is I would put Buddy Heald where Brown is, but I wouldn't change any of the rest of the list. I think Turner is right there. You know, considering you have, you know, basically rosters of five that are starting, you know, basically, you know, you have 12 teams worth of players that are better than Turner. Again, that means there's probably about 12 starting centers that are better than him, which, again, isn't terribly far-fetched. Halliburton, I would say, if anything, could go a little bit higher. But I think, you know, we talked about the biggest knock on him has been the fact that he is not consistently scoring, you know, 25 to 30 points a game and he kind of is willing to kind of dish it out but again I think that's where they look at this list from not so much what he is capable of but I would say I think he's around the top 25 to 30 player so again I don't think it's terribly far off but you'd like to see it change a little bit right so last thing on the Pacers and this is not so much related to the Pacers but I think it's just a fun topic because you know it relates to you know former villains of the team so Paul George has had a lot of press with the Pacers. He seems to be talking a lot about them. I think there's some kind of rumored interest he doesn't want to lead on about, about returning to the team. But he was interviewed this past week by Stephen A. Smith on his show. And then Paul George's comments were this. 
The Pacers would have won the 2014 NBA championship had he not broken his leg. So that was his comment. Do you agree with it or do you disagree with it? I disagree. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to go first if you'd like before I get into my reasons because I feel pretty passionate about it. (laughs) Sure. So mine will be pretty short and sweet and to the point. So basically, no, this is not a championship roster. And again, I'm not trying to like speak up the volumes of how great Danny Granger was, but like he was your second man in command and he had already been dealt. David West had kind of started his downward spiral. You know, he had those torn ACLs in new Orleans before he got to us again. He was a solid contributor, but never like that great second. But then the rest of the roster was consisting of George Hill, CJ miles, Rodney Stuckey. Neither of those really, you know, panned out to be all-star talents. Hibbert, you know, had done pretty good. And then Scola was your sixth man. And then the rest of the bench with Solomon Hill, Mahini, me, AJ Price, CJ Watson, and Chris Copeland were nothing to kind of shout out about. So again, in my mind, I completely agree with you. I don't think they would have won the 2014 championship. 13 is when they should have won, but they got screwed out by Miami refs in Miami. But I want to get your thoughts since you said you're a little more passionate about this. Well, so you take it away. Let's first let's first say this. So it was August 2014 when Paul George suffered that unfortunate leg injury, which means we'd really be talking about the championship that took place in 2015. It would have been the 2014-2015 season. I have a question for you, Adam. Do you know any major events that took place in that season off the top of your head? 2014 to 15? Yeah. I don't know. If if not, I can... What Was that about the time he got traded? No. I'll tell you this. That was LeBron's first year back in Cleveland after his stint in Miami. That was also the start of the Golden State Warriors dynasty. And that was part one of the Golden State Warriors versus the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA Finals that year. Hmm. So with that being said, even if the Pacers somehow found a way to get through the Cavaliers and whatever else was going on in the Eastern Conference, they would have been met in the Finals with the Golden State Warriors, of course, this was at the beginning of their dynasty when you know Steph and 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 Clay were at their prime. I don't think there's any possible way that they can take down the Warriors in seven games. I just don't. And like I said, that's regardless of whether or not they get out of the Eastern Conference. Well, so that's my my answer is no, regardless of what the Pacers roster looked like. Well, and I'll say this, you know. The Pacers ended up finishing that season 24th in scoring. You know, the defense was still pretty much on pace. They were still pretty solid in that because, you know, again, they had Hill and Hibbert, West. You know, those were some pretty solid defensive players. But, you know, you didn't have a clear presence to kind of take them through that season. So George Hill was their leading scorer that season with 12 points a game. Or, sorry, not 12 points a game, my apologies, with 16 points a game. Much better. Yeah, everyone else was 13 or under. So, again, when you look at that, you know, that was the year that you had, you know, George, you know, I think he tried to come back, if I remember right, and it just wasn't meant to be, or it was, you know, in the, you know, initial idea that he had, you know, not been playing well before the injury. So, again, there wasn't a lot to his game that year anyway, which, again, if he was on all-star level, it would have been a good team. But, yeah, 
nobody was beating the 73 and nine warriors of, of that era. Nobody was beating LeBron with Irving and Kevin, what Kevin love when he was actually still good at basketball. Again, the Pacers might've, might've finished third. I don't even think they were better than Cleveland if Paul George was healthy, but Again, it seems like Paul George wants to kind of build up talking about the Pacers a lot more recently of late. And, you know, I think it kind of goes back to this whole notion of, I remember he said, oh, I'm going to leave and go win a championship with the Clippers. Joey, has that happened yet? Uh, To my last knowledge, no, it has not. Exactly. So, again, we're looking at a player that was ready to leave because you couldn't build any talent around him. And the irony is... I think his career is in shambles, and I think he sees the Pacers on the up end. Sound like any of your favorite players, you know, when you try to go back to teams that are building a good team, actually, only to, you know, basically screw over that team? Sound like anyone you know? Are you, If you're referring to LeBron James, I'll just remind you that he did, in fact, bring that championship to Cleveland in his return, and then we'll move on. And left them in shambles afterwards. But, yeah. That's not a disagreement. I win. Moving on, though. So <laughs> just some brief other news, and this is going to be short, sweet, and to the point. Uh, first thing is, so, Joey, you remember a couple weeks ago, we went down to Indy for our favorite team's preseason game, and there was a lot of construction going on at Gamebridge Fieldhouse, right? Yeah. Yep. So I actually just found this out yesterday, so it was kind of cool. But apparently they're building an outdoor court that's going to be free for public use right outside of Gamebridge Fieldhouse. So. What are your thoughts on this idea? Do you think it's good? Do you think it's bad? Do you think other teams should adopt it? You know, does it help the city? What do you What do you think? Uh, I'm just trying to understand. It says outdoor court. I'm hoping it's outdoor courts because I don't know how you're going to regulate. You know, just one court with the amount of with the amount of people that I'm sure would be wanting to play on it. So I'm interested to see how it's regulated. I think it's a good idea, and I think you should see it more often outside of these stadiums. Just a matter of if it's one single court, there's going to be like lines of people waiting to get in on games and stuff there. So that's that would be my only concern if I had any. See, and and I don't know. Like, here's my problem with this. Like, downtown Indy is already busy enough, you know, and one of the things that I don't want to happen, like, again, is the whole idea that, you know, groups of people start coming around there and trying to claim the court as territory. You know, I think that can send the wrong message, but. I think that this is one of those things that they're doing to kind of prepare the city for the all-star game this upcoming season, you know, as it finally gets to happen in Indy after two years of being delayed. So in my end of it, you know, I think it could be a good idea, but like you said, I would need to know more. And there wasn't a lot in the article I read about how many courts it was. It just showed a picture for what that's worth and that it's still being finished. But Again, I think if it's multiple courts, I think it's a wonderful idea. But the picture made it seem like it's one giant court that kind of goes under a canopy. So maybe not bad, but I don't know. There's more that I would need on that. But kind of looking at two other small things, the Indiana Fever were finally eliminated from the playoffs. Yeah, I know, Joey, it took them this long to get eliminated. But they came off a game this this past week where, you know, they had a pretty big win, 97-84 to 84 against the Mystics. But Kelsey Mitchell and Nalisha Smith both had career-high nights of 30 points apiece between the two of them. So 
it's nice to see them get that win, but at 12 wins for the season and their season actually wraps up by the end of next week, you know, again, a lot kind of rides on their, you know, standings because as it stands right now, they are playing right now against Chicago and are losing currently. So if we look at the standings, they're pretty much still right at the very bottom of the WNBA. Not very far away, though, from being worse than Seattle. So, again, they are considered the third worst team now. Phoenix is the worst. And then the Seattle is right above, or sorry, right below them. So the Fever would be picking third based on current projections. So, again, they need to be losing all the games now. Yeah, I agree with you there. So, with that, again, there is no way that they get worse than third for draft lottery odds because there's not that many games left. Again, they're three games below Chicago and have played more games than Chicago. Or, sorry, they've played the same amount of games as Chicago. But, again, if the Fever end up getting to pick first, that's just going to be a miracle of epic proportions. But It would be a Caitlin Clark miracle. But, kind of going in a more local news update and i've actually been reading a lot about this just from overall districts and you went to the the high school football game this past friday so maybe you have an inside look at it that i don't but hamilton southeastern and indy was the big school that made the headline this past week and so they told media outlets along with our you know our high school of eastbrook and my district of kokomo that Students that are younger than eighth grade are now being required to be escorted at all times by parents at these games. So I want to get your thoughts on, you know, the the rule change and how enforceable you think it is. And that's kind of where your lens of looking at what the game was like is kind of interesting. So I want you to take this one away for us. I, I, I understand it. I do. But at the same time, one one like vivid memory I have as a kid is being there at the Eastbrook games in that open field right by the football field and playing pickup games with my friends and running around and hanging out and not having a care in the world. And I will just throw this out there. I saw that exact same thing this past Friday when I was there for a game. So I I don't know if that rule was already in effect or how, how they're approaching the whole idea of enforcing it. But I can tell you from experience this past Friday, it didn't look any different than it normally has. Well, and see, that's my big thing on it. I mean, I I understand it. I don't think it's a bad idea, but like at the point of why it needs to be enforced, again, Hamilton Southeastern, that's in Indy. You're getting thousands and thousands of people at those games. It's it's probably a bigger market than what we're used to. And it's bigger than Kokomo even. But again, I, I get the safety purpose of it. But like, you know, I have to absolutely agree with, you know, just like being able to walk around the field, socialize, talk with friends and stuff, you know, even at a bit of a younger age, you know, those football games became experiences, not just for the games, but for the culture around it, what you could do with your friends. And again, no offense to our school, but like after Eastbrook would be winning by 30 or 40 to nothing, I'd lose interest in watching the game at that point. And that's me personally. And I know some people are like, keep running up touchdowns, keep getting the scores, right? But, like, again, football games, again, we've talked about why we love high school sports on this podcast before, but it's the culture of it's accessible to everybody and that, you know, 
it's more, you know, approachable in that sense. But, you know, I don't think like things are going to happen at Eastbrook in the pickup field that's literally right by where all the people are cooking food. You know, there is fence perimeters around. People in our community know everybody. I'd even say Kokomo to some extent. People really know each other because it's a lot of the same people that go to these games each week. But I don't know. I think it's really hard to enforce it. And I guess, you know, like, I'm sure you could agree with this. Like, it's hard to agree with the rule once someone else has complete control over it. Like, we could say all day, oh, yeah, they should totally make, like, you know, little kids, like six-year-olds be able to stay with their parents and 10-year-olds stay with their parents. But, like, once someone decides that, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't like that rule anymore. And I guess that's, in a way, where I kind of stand on it. Yeah, and like I said, no no matter how my personal feelings are, I I do understand it. You know, when you think about safety issues and liability issues and all that other stuff, I get where they're coming from from that side of things. But at the same time, like you mentioned, it's just the whole, you know, experience of going to a high school football game is something that could be at jeopardy with that. And that's if, of course, they have an actual way of enforcing it. But I think that's a pretty good wrapping point from my end on that conversation. Yeah, and, and absolutely, you know, I guess at the end of the day, you want that safety for everyone. One thing I will say that I, I noticed that high schools are now doing is that like Eastbrook, I know they want like the digital tickets and stuff like that to make the check-in processes go easier and whatnot. And I know that um, an old high school, uh, you know, graduate that we went to school with, you know, she's kind of leading the ticket sales. And, you know, I remember I was reading in the comments this week that once you leave the facility you're not getting back in so like again i know that like it was always late games that they wouldn't enforce you know people standing in there but i guess now that's kind of one of those things that i wonder if that's going to be that accountability piece to keep people safe is you know if you do leave and try to come back will they make you buy another ticket so i do think that's interesting you know at the end of the day i do want people to be safe at sports but you know, that enforceable part, there's so many questions that I would have as to how you're absolutely going to do it. But I don't have right. anything else on that either. And so we will jump into verse of the week because, you know, we have gone quite a long way here. But again, my verse, or my verse, not my verse, is pretty short and sweet and to the point this week, which now I can't find. Sorry. But, oh yeah, here it is. So the verse for this week comes from James 1.17, and it goes like this. So, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so, um, I had a couple of different verses I was looking at for this. But, again, I wanted to kind of reflect my verse more to everyone than just myself. And so, obviously, this past week, as you know, Joey, the reason that you had to do the podcast all by yourself is for the birth of my daughter. And so again, when I consider, you know, everything about her, you know, she is absolutely in my, my mind, the perfect gift from above. And, you know, this verse is just a reminder that every good thing that we receive, whether it's children or, you know, a job promotion or anything like that, it all comes from God. And so there is no variation of God changing due to changes that happen to us. God is always giving those good gifts and he's always the one behind really all the good things that happen to us in general. Yeah. I think that's an excellent verse, especially for your circumstance here. And I would just, you know, 
inspire everybody to carry that with you this week. If something comes up that, you know, like a gift of any kind, that could be somebody smiled at you and it made your day, or it could be something as big as what Adam and his wife experienced with the birth of a brand new baby girl. But no matter how major or minor of it is, if you receive anything like that this week, just keep that in mind about where that gift came from. And then think about how and why that gift was given to you and how to apply it in your, in your continued journey with Christ. But excellent verse there, Adam. And I'd just like to extend what I said last week that, yeah, I'm, I'm happy for you and Caitlin. I'm going to continue praying for your guys' adjustment as you adjust to having a little girl in the house now. But I think you picked a good verse for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I, w- I will not understate how much of an adjustment that it has been. But at the same time, you know, I I wouldn't give up this opportunity for anything. You know, I've told you for years that having a daughter is one of those things that like I have anxiously looked forward to. And now that it's kind of here, like, you know, I have a hard time putting her down and actually going to work, which, you know, I've talked about wanting more paternity leave for teachers and just for people in general. But that's a much deeper conversation than is necessary for the podcast. But Needless to say, you know, one thing I want to add, you know, to echo, you know, your your talk about receiving any little gift, you know, I think, you know, people sometimes look at, you know, signs like butterflies flying around or, you know, different color skies. And, you know, tomorrow, as you know, Joey is the fourth year since my brother has passed away. And, you know, it's always interesting. Usually on that day, I see a set, either a red sunset or a red sunrise. And it's on that particular moment that I think about Mark and I just get that smile on my face. And so, you know, that always brings me, you know, something little in moments where I need it. And so I think gifts don't have to be the physical things. I think they can be things that we certainly see too, you know, for some people, it might be a certain cloud shape or, you know, the wind blowing, you know, children happy playing, whatever, you know, floats each individual's, you know, particular tastes. But I think, anything small like that is a big blessing just the same. And so obviously I'll continue to look for my own signs, but you know, like you said, you know, hopefully everybody that listens can find something like that for themselves to carry them through each and every day. Cause again, every good gift does come from God. Absolutely. And I think that what you just said, there is the perfect place to end that discussion. So again, Adam, I thank you for being vulnerable on this whole journey as we work through these verse of the weeks every week. I know, you know, our main focus here is the sports, but these are the conversations I really enjoy. And as you guys heard a couple of weeks ago, sometime these conversations, we continue after the podcast, but again, Adam, I enjoy these talks. Obviously I enjoy talking sports with you as well. I'm glad to have you back this week. Yeah, And I'm looking forward same. to our preview for the Colts game that we have coming up this Friday. Make sure you come back and check that out. It'll be up Friday evening where we'll take a look at that game against the Jaguars. You can find us at any of our social medias in the description. But unless you have anything else, Adam? Nope, nothing. Go ahead and take it away. All right. We will see you guys Friday. And then we'll be back next Tuesday for another episode of Hoosier State Sports Show. But until then, God bless. Have a good week.